Jesus sees our sin all the time. And because we're tag teaming on this, and Mark made that cool, like, iron-on t-shirt that had a sin on it, like, I felt like, you know, I needed to do one too. And so I, I, I've made a, a t-shirt that I wanted to share with you. And I know that this may not be a sin in all places, but I feel like in Missouri it is. And I just got to be, I just got to confess, guys, that I rooted for OU. <laughs> Get out of here. Oh, man, come on. You're a Cubs fan and we haven't kicked you out yet. Seriously. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Well, here's brother-in-law. It's bad enough. Um, seriously, though, guys, these woes that we are teaching through right now, this is huge stuff and it has huge implications for our church. The first woes were to the Pharisees. These, uh, second, or these last three woes are going to be to the lawyers, to the teachers of the law. And so as you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verses 45 to 54, that's where we're going to be today. I want to pray for us and we're going to get started. God, thank you so much for bringing us back. Father, I pray right now that as we open up your word, that you will make yourself real to us. God, I pray that you would push me completely out of the way so that you can speak and so that you can get the glory, God. I pray that you would help us to be attentive. Father, I pray um, that right now your word will become living and active in our lives. Amen. Let's go. Luke chapter 11, starting there in verse 45. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And so right off the bat, what we see here is there is an expert in the law in the room. Remember, Jesus is gone and he is dining with a Pharisee and they're having a conversation. And now we see an expert in the, in the law or a lawyer chime in and he says, wait a second, Jesus, when you say these things, you're insulting me also. It's important to understand that there is a difference between lawyers and Pharisees. So often we group them together because oftentimes in Scripture it is almost said synonymously Pharisees and lawyers. So I want to tell you what the difference is real quickly between Pharisees and lawyers. Pharisees were a part of a large Jewish sect, one of the most prominent during Jesus' time. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. They believed in the resurrection. Some of them believed in predestination and some of them believed in free will. So in many ways they were a lot like us. Hopefully, the difference is this group of Pharisees, these Pharisee people, were very, very concerned with the way that people saw them. They wanted people to see them as very holy, very religious. And so the ceremonies and the religious rites that they took part of, like praying and like the ceremonial cleansing of hands, they wanted people to see them doing these things. Um, I have a Bible that we give away to children when we're dedicating them called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in that Bible, it calls the Pharisees the extra super holy people. Like, that's their name all the way through. And it's trying to sum up this fact that these guys tried to be extra religious so that the world could see. When in reality, oftentimes worship wasn't taking place in their hearts because they believed in a works-based gospel. Now, the difference in lawyers was this. Lawyers were charged with the responsibility of interpreting the law of Moses. And so lawyers were oftentimes the ones that were feeding the Pharisees the values that they held to in the teachings that they were giving. Okay? So the lawyers were the ones that are coming up with these ideas that the Pharisees are giving. Now, you can understand 
why this guy begins to squirm in his seat a little bit and he gets uncomfortable. He's sitting there thinking, whoa, like, wait a second, Jesus. I'm the one that taught him that. <laughs> Jesus, I'm the one that I gave him the exacto knife so he could cut up 10% of his herbs. Like, Jesus, I'm, I'm the one that taught him to pray like that. When you are insulting the Pharisee, you're insulting me. Now, this guy is not very smart. Would you guys agree? He should have just kept his mouth shut. But instead, he comes into Jesus and he's like, Jesus, you're insulting me. And it's almost as if Jesus looks at him. This is a Dan Rammer quote, by the way. Jesus looks at him and he says, you know what? You're right. But me indirectly insulting you is not insulting you enough. So let's go, to, let's go toe-to-toe for a second and let me really insult you. And so that's what he does. Check this out. We've got some windage in the room. My Bibles are flipping pages here. Jesus replied, alright, to the, to the reply that he gave, and you experts in the law, you lawyers, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And so the burdens that they were giving people were taking them away from the gospel because they were giving people a works-based faith and it was loading them down and killing them the the way that i have continued to see this and god brought it to me kind of in a vision and i want to share it to you to hopefully help you to see what's happening here i want you to remember like back to the idea of um that we saw in hebrews hebrews chapter 12 of there being a race imagine if you will for a moment you have a lawyer okay you have a pharisee and then there's you and me And we've all lined up to this starting line. And the lawyer looks over at the Pharisee and he says, Hey, you know what? Like, I found out that if you put on this parachute when you run in the race, it actually helps you. So so here, let me give you this parachute. And I also found out that if you put on this weighted vest, here, Pharisee, like, put on the weighted vest. And there's these special shoes that are kind of big and clunky on the bottom, but if you put them on, they'll help you to run. And so the, the lawyer is giving all of this burdenous junk to the Pharisee who's about to run this race. And so the Pharisee sees it and he was like, yeah, here we go. This will even make me look good in the race. So he looks to you and me and he starts giving us this same junk. He's trying to give us the, the parachute to put on our back and he's giving us the weighted vest and the ankle weights. And all the while, you and I are standing here and we're loading all this on and we begin to think, wait a second, like... Isn't this going to slow us down? Isn't this going to hinder us in the race? And then you and I look over at the Pharisee and the lawyer and they're like standing there in Under Armour and Air Pegasus. Like they're not wearing any of the stuff. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly what these guys did. They gave away all the junk. The lawyers were feeding all these burdens onto people, but they weren't carrying any of them. You can see that so evidently in Matthew chapter 23 Verses 2 and 3. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 and 3, you'll see this. Jesus says, they do not practice what they preach. They don't even practice what they preach. He's speaking here to the Pharisees and to the lawyers. It's so bad. Here's a couple of examples. They would tell people that you, wouldn't, you couldn't carry anything in your right hand, in your left hand, across your um, chest 
or on your shoulders. But because the lawyers were experts in the law, much like our lawyers today, what they would do instead is when they needed to carry something on the Sabbath, they would carry it on the back of their hand. Pretty smart, huh? They would also carry things with their shoes, or they would tie things to their hair, or they would carry things in the hem of their shirt. So they're telling people, you can't carry things, but I'm going to figure out a way around it. Yep, I'm going to figure out a way to carry stuff on the Sabbath. Here's another interesting thing that they would do. They would tell people that you cannot tie knots on the Sabbath. Alright, interesting. Well, in order to draw water, though, you would need to be able to tie a rope to your bucket. Alright, this is going to get good. So what the Pharisees and the lawyers would do, the lawyers would take a girdle, because a woman was allowed to tie her girdle on the Sabbath, and they would take a rope and a bucket, and they would tie the girdle to the rope, and then they would tie the other part of the girdle to the bucket. So see, all they were doing was tying a girdle. They weren't tying a rope, right? Do you guys, are you seeing this? They were making up these ridiculous laws and then they were figuring out ways around them just so they could look good. Like, I have this picture in my head of Jason O'Dell coming into my lot family and i got to find something to do this with. I guess I'm going to use my Bible. Can I use your Bible? I don't want to use my Bible. I'm going to drop it. So I see like Jason O'Dell coming into my lot family and Jason's like carrying his like tuna casserole like on the top of his hand, alright? And then Lindsay Holm comes in and like she's got one of her bras, you know, and she's like holding the two liter, you know, to it. Like, it's just absolutely ridiculous what these guys were doing. If, can you imagine us living in a world like this? Can you? It's a good thing that Lindsay's not here, by the way. A lot of us are sitting here thinking, you know what, I can't imagine us living in a world like this because we don't live in a world like this. You know what, we do. We absolutely do. In our grandparents' generation, there was this idea that develops, I don't know how, over time, but in order to come into a church, you needed to dress appropriately in the house of God. Now, I'm not minimizing that you need to wear clothes to church, okay? But what I am saying is that there was this idea that developed that if somebody came in through the back of the church and everybody was sitting around worshiping and they were wearing torn up jeans and they had a stained shirt and they had a ball cap on, all of a sudden the women began to like pass it through the prayer chain that they needed to pray for that guy's salvation. Because obviously, if he didn't know how to dress in church, he was not a Christian, do you guys remember this time? For some of you that maybe are still attending church with your grandparents, there's this idea that um, James chapter 2 completely destroys that people have to dress a certain way in order to worship. And it's just not true. There is no mark of salvation in that. Okay? Here, check this out. In our parents' generation, there was this idea that began to, to develop that Sunday morning church like wasn't enough. And I know part of this began to develop before that, but I think it climaxed in our parents' generation. And there was this idea that in order to, to really get enough gospel, you needed to start a Sunday night service too. And like the Sunday night service was the place where if you really wanted to be a disciple, like you had to go on Sunday night. And 
Sunday night worship wasn't enough because there really needed to be some type of discipleship training and so they started out at 5 o'clock and then the worship service was at 6. Well, after 6, they needed to have a choir and so they had choir practice at 7 and somewhere in the middle there was something else, I don't even know what, probably a potluck dinner or something. Then, on Tuesdays, in order to visit all the people that came on Sundays, you would need to have a visitation. On Wednesdays, you'd need to have another Bible study. On Thursday night, you'd have the prayer meeting. And then on Friday, there had to be some type of youth activity. On Saturday morning, you had like the men's prayer breakfast. And on Sunday, the whole cycle started over again. And somehow, if like you were a person that just came on Sundays, or maybe you just came on Sundays and Wednesdays, people began to think, well, I mean, they're, they're all right, but they don't come to discipleship training on Sunday night. So obviously, like they're not a hardcore Christian there may be something wrong with their salvation. You see what I'm saying? You guys see this? Busyness, as Mark shares all the time, does not equal holiness. Busyness does not equal holiness. Unfortunately, what was happening in that generation is that fathers were being robbed of their time to train up their boys and their girls to love Jesus. They were being robbed of the time that they would need to lead their families in worship. And they were giving their children over to the church so that the church could be responsible to do it. You know what else was happening? Families were not having the opportunity because of the busyness of schedules to really engage their neighbors in relationship. I grew up in a home like this and I will be the first to stand here and say my family did not know our neighbors and my family never had worship time because we were too busy worshiping at church. Friends, this is a problem. Busyness does not equal holiness. It is not a means to salvation. And so the question now becomes, it's a lot easier to see the the burdens that that we place on the culture when we're like years removed. Do you guys see this? What's a lot harder is to look at the burdens that we may be giving the culture today. The big question that we have been wrestling with all week as we as a group have tried to prepare what tonight would look like is this. What is the burden that our culture is putting on the backs of people that is a false picture of what the gospel should be? What is the burden that we're putting on people that is an unnecessary burden that they shouldn't have and tonight, I'm not even going to go, go into trying to answer that question. I've got a lot of ideas, but you know what? I think it's something that we all need to wrestle with. And so my challenge to you tonight is going to be to take that question, write it down, do whatever you need to do. What is the burden that we are giving our culture that we should not be giving, just like the lawyers we're doing and on Sunday in our lot families that's going to be a big part of our time is us as a church trying to discern now how can we not be a burden to people in an unnecessary way here's a here's some passages I want you guys to see Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 to 30 Andrew if you could put that up for us Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 to 30 Jesus says come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest Amen. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus tells us, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke would be what He would put on our backs. You want to know why it's light? Because He's helping us carry it. Let me read another passage to you. Psalms chapter 68 Verses 19 and 20. 
Praise be to the Lord, to the God our Savior, who daily, what? He bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the Sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you won't have burdens as a Christian. I believe that you will. But what I am saying is that Jesus Christ came and He bore our sin on the cross. And our sin is our burden. We don't have to carry that anymore. And it is by faith that we are saved, not by works. There will be nothing that you could be put on your back that is going to get you closer to Jesus if you do it. Jesus Christ came on your behalf and He died for you so that you could know God. Take that yoke upon you. Let's keep moving forward. Next piece here. Starting in verse 47. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in His wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. Now, this is kind of a a challenging text here to dive into, and this is probably the, the piece that I wrestle with the most because there is so much here. Let me simplify it for you as we begin by saying this. Mark talked last week about how Jesus begins the woes to the Pharisees and he tells them, you are like a cup in a dish where on the outside you look clean, but on the inside you are filled with greed and you're filled with wickedness. This is the exact same thing that he is saying here to the lawyers. He says, you know what? On the outside you are making these beautiful tombs for the dead prophets. But inside your heart, like your fathers, you are killing them. Because while you build these tombs for the dead prophets, your forefathers killed them and you affirm what your forefathers did. How can you build these tombs while at the same time affirming that they needed to die? They were doing it because they were getting public recognition for recognizing the great prophets of old. The other way that they were killing the prophets of old is that they did not live the life that the prophets preached because they were still living a life that valued externals more than internals. Remember, it's like that nasty nacho dish that Mark talked about where you put this thing in the microwave and you cook it up for two minutes, which I do not know why he burns his food. But you put this thing in there and you light that sucker up and when you pull out that cheese, like it's so gooey in the middle, but when you finish it, there's this nasty, like brown, black, orange crust that's all the way around the inside of that dish. And on the outside, it can still be, still be clean, but on the inside, it is disgusting. In the same way, the lawyers were like the Pharisees in that they were doing things outwardly, but inwardly, they did not have the heart of Christ. That's the first thing that Jesus says. Then he says something that's alarming. 
Check this out. Um, Looking down in verse 49, because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of who they will kill and others they will persecute. And what Jesus is saying here is that not only are you affirming in your heart what your forefathers did, but you're going to do the exact same thing. Because in my will, in my wisdom, in my sovereignty, God is going to send more apostles and more prophets. He knows what you're going to do. You're going to do the exact same thing again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to um, Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 16, and see this. This was part of of really, as as I studied and as I prepared to teach tonight, this is what helped me get my, my, my mind around what was happening here. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 16. This is a parable that Jesus tells um, the Pharisees and the lawyers, and it's the exact same thing that He's saying in this passage. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, He sent a servant to the tenants who would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Okay, so I, stop here and just think about this for a second. The one that has planted the vineyard is God. Alright? God has some tenants that are taking care of this vineyard and He's going to send some of His prophets, some of His apostles to go and to check on His vineyard. And this is what happens. Picking up there. But the tenants beat Him and sent Him away empty-handed. So they beat who? The prophets and the apostles that he sends to check. Verse 11, He sent another servant, but that one also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, He sent still a third and they wounded him and they threw him out. This is what the Pharisees and the lawyers are doing. They are beating the prophets and the apostles that Jesus is sending. Verse 13, So then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I know what I'll do. I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. And so the owner of the vineyard sends his son, Jesus Christ. And what will they do? But when the tenants saw him, when the lawyers and the Pharisees, they talked the matter over, this is the heir, they said, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. And in that moment, they're right at the end where he says that he is going to kill the people that have done this to Jesus. That is the same thing that Jesus is saying when He says, you are going to be held responsible from the prophets that were martyred from Abel all the way to Zechariah. In the Hebrew Bible, Zechariah is the last one to be martyred. In our Bible and in the Hebrew Bible, the first one to be martyred is Abel, right? 
And because Luke, as he writes this letter to Theopolis, he believed that the Old Testament was all of prophecy. So he looked at these men as prophets that were martyred. And what he is saying is that, you know what, guys? Your generation is going to be held responsible for all of the martyrs of the past. And you're going to be held responsible for the apostles and the prophets that you're going to kill in this generation. Stephen, Peter, the apostle James... And you're going to be responsible for me, Jesus. Because you know what? They didn't have to kill all of them to believe in their deaths. And God not only sees what we do with our hands, but He sees what we do with our heart. And so they'll be held responsible specifically for the climax of killing Jesus Christ. Okay. So getting through all of that, here is the practical implications that I think that we really need to take away from this. Their forefathers did it. And what will they do? They'll do it too. Like father, like son. Hear that. Like father, like son. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 6 tells us that it is our responsibility to train up our children in the way that they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Let me tell you something. If you guys already right now are checking out because you're saying, you know what? I'm in college. I have no children. Stop thinking about yourself and think about future generations for a moment. I'm not saying that everybody here will have children, but most of you will. And you need to be thinking about your third and your fourth and your fifth generation because we see that in Scripture. We should care about the legacy that we're going to leave behind. And when you train up a child... The secondary training that you do is in what you say and it's in the correction that you give. Your primary training is what you do. You want to know that these guys, their forefathers, they did good things externally, but their hearts were rotten. And so what happens is they raise up these new Pharisees and they raise up these new lawyers and they struggle with the same thing. They've got bitterness in their heart. They've got anger. They're going to kill the prophets. They're going to kill the apostles. We are responsible to train up our children in the way that they should go. And, and I want to, the way that I really was able to picture this today, I know this, this looks very weird. I'm sorry. We use this analogy of a sponge. And we say, children are like sponges. They soak up everything that they get. That's true. It's what we do. It's what we say and what we live. Not just the correction. It's everything. My children are watching me all the time. And so children are like a sponge in that they soak up everything that happens around them. Correction, training, what you say, most importantly, what you do. But you know what? That analogy is bonk if it ends right here. Because you know what happens to a sponge? It's going to let its water out. And let's just pretend that this is me for a moment. And here, I've soaked up all these things for my father. And now I have three, almost four, and this is a blue, it's going to be a boy, children who I am going to be responsible for. And what I am going to do is I am going to be soaking out everything that I have learned from my forefathers and from God, and I am going to be filling them up. 
And it's going to happen from generation to generation to generation. Church, may we begin to recognize that we need to create the right legacies. Not legacies of religion, but legacies of love. These forefathers, are, they're just creating these legacies of religion. Let me tell you why this is so important. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to see this. God's Word, hidden in the Ten Commandments, something that you probably miss because you just read the first line. You shall not bow down to them, speaking of idols, or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Did you get that? I will punish children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Some of you right now are going, nope, that's not fair. How could God punish children for the sins of their father? That's not what the text is saying. What it's saying is that your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren are going to follow you because they are going to be like you. Think about it. Who are you most like? You're most like your parents. And if the third and the fourth generation has not repented for the way that you raised them, they're going to turn out just like you and they're going to be punished. But, this is the great hope. It's just like if you train a child in the way that they should go, when they're old, they won't depart from it if you love Jesus truly. Again, verse 6, but showing love to how many? Thousands of generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. So if you have children and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, really love them. They'll love them too. Isn't that exciting? Like, do you get excited about that? That gives us great hope for our children. So, fathers, if you don't want your children to have financial problems, then start spending your money wisely. Fathers, if you don't want your children to grow up and be wimps that sit in the basement all day and play computer games, and when you're not around, look at pornography, then don't sit in your basement all the time playing video games and looking at pornography. Because even if they don't see you all the time, they are going to know and they're going to follow you. If you want your children to love your neighbors, mothers, then love your neighbors. If you want your children, mothers, to respect their husbands, then start respecting your husband because they see you all the time and they're going to become like you. If you want your children to love the Lord Jesus Christ, then you love the Lord Jesus Christ and God will take care of the rest. It's a promise. That's what you need to worry about. I pray that our church, Matthias Lot, will be a church that raises up children who love Jesus. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4 says that if you give yourselves over to sin, then your children will be corrupt. I pray that this church will not have corrupt children. But by the ways that we have set up our church, that you will have the time that you need to train up your children in the way that they should go. If you're in college, then take that and hide it in your heart. Pack it away in a Bible. Put it on your notes and pull it out in a couple years because you're going to need to know that. May we be a church that loves Jesus and our children will do the same. Moving on in this next piece. In the sixth and final woe, This is what Jesus says. Verse 52, Woe to you experts in the law 
Because you have taken away the key to knowledge and you yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. What is the key to knowledge? Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, 44 to 48. And this is beautiful. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 48. And God's word is always beautiful, friends. The key to knowledge is a very, very important line. Jesus is giving them the most powerful indictment that he's given yet. This is huge. This is what he says. Um, and, And this is what the key is. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking here to the disciples. And He's telling them that everything that was told about Me in the prophets, the, the law of Moses, in the Psalms, it must be fulfilled. But what does He say? It's about Me. Jesus is saying right here, all of Scripture from the past, all of it, it all points to me. And I came and I'm the key to unlocking all of Scripture. But like us, the disciples are really hard-headed. Alright? And they can't see it. And so Jesus has to do something. Verse 45, Then He opens their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Amazing that they could not understand the Scriptures until Jesus opens their mind. They're a lot like us. Verse 46, He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer, He will rise from the dead, and on the third day, and the repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all of the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so He says, I am the key to knowledge, in that I will be preached to all generations. So Jesus is the key. Now what is knowledge? If you turn again, let's turn to Matthew chapter 23. Verse 13. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Jesus says, I'm the key. Alright? Now He's going to say, to what? Matthew 23, verse 13. And this is the woes paralleled in Matthew. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven into men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So check this out. Jesus looks at him and he says, you're taking the key to knowledge and you're taking it away from people. Not only are you not entering the kingdom of heaven, but the people that are trying to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're taking the door and you are slamming it on their face. That is a horrible indictment. And I want you to to, to get a picture of of truly what is being said here. We had uh, some of our fine men who are in construction build this beautiful door for us. We'll be selling it on eBay after the service. $100. And Jesus is saying, all right, and, and I'm going to try to help you guys understand this. God creates. 
He creates the world to be beautiful. He creates Himself to have a relationship with man. And then sin enters the world. And it's like you have God on this side. Alright? And then you have man on this side. And what effectively happens when sin comes into the world is there's this huge wall that has been created that is now separating man and is separating God. And what's happening is that Jesus is saying... I have come to take away the separation. I have come to be the keys to the door that will unlock man to be restored back to the relationship with God. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. That's what Jesus is saying. And what He's saying is that there is a key that must open this door. And instead of giving people the key, you've effectively taken the door and you've slammed it in their face. You're not giving people the opportunity to come into the kingdom of heaven. Why are they not giving them the opportunity? How are they doing this? They are giving people a set of rules and saying, here's the deal. When you run the race, take the parachute, take the ankle weights, take the vest. This is going to help you run the race. And Jesus is saying, no! That's not the way that you run the race. The way that you run the race is that you accept Me as Lord. You take the keys. You recognize that in order to be in My kingdom, you have to have the key, which is Jesus. It's the only key that opens the door. So you have to take that and that opens the door. And then you can walk through and you can be restored to Christ and you can have that relationship. But what you're doing is you are taking these rules and people are getting off track and they're going this way and that way. The key that you're giving them is the wrong key. Any gospel that says that rules are the way that you get to the kingdom of God is a false gospel. It's false. Jesus Christ and faith in Him is the only way to the gospel. Any gospel that teaches that you will one day have the ability to become a God by doing works and possibly you will have the opportunity to have three different heavens. And if you work the hardest and you become a God on the third and then you can have celestial sex for the rest of your lives and you will have all these offspring that will become your children, that is a false gospel. That is not the key. That leads people astray. It takes the key and it throws it far away. And it leads people to death. It's like defecating on the throne of God. Because the throne of God says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is only one God. And there's only one mediator, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can lead you to God. And when you take that key, you can go through the door. But if you don't have that key, you'll never get in. There's another one. And it says this, That somehow, gifts can become as good as the giver. It's the health, wealth, prosperity gospel that is being preached over our nation. And it says that here's gifts and here's Jesus. And oftentimes it says here's gifts and here's Jesus. And Jesus wants to give you everything that you ever wanted. It is a load of bull. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ is the only way. And if you want to come and suffer with Him, then you accept Him. That's the gospel. There's a video that I want you guys to see that'll show this. I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it. It is not the gospel. It's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia. 
selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message. Your pigs won't die. Your wife won't have miscarriages. You have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. People that ought to be giving our money and our time and our lives instead of selling a bunch of crap called gospel. Here's the reason it is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW? Never. They'll say, Jesus can do that? Yeah. Well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above givers. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands like dead on the street. And you say, through the deepest possible pain, God's in love. is good. Take care of us, He will satisfy us, He will get us through this. He is our treasure. When we have I in heaven with you and on earth, there's nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, my little girl may fail. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look. God, not as giver of cars or safety or health. Oh, how I pray that America would be purged of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and that the Christian church would be marked by suffering for Christ. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him in the midst of loss. Verse 53, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. At the end of this time, we now see these Pharisees and this lawyer's become furious with Jesus. And I say, it's go time. Now, had it not been for the promises of God, this is the place where I think all of us should be pulling out our hands and biting on our nails because we would say, this is scary. Jesus is going to be in the hands of men. They're going to have their way. Thanks be to God that He is sovereign. Thanks be to God that He is indeed in control in all ages. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Take this with you. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush Him (laughs) and cause Him to suffer 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Church, thank be to God that we don't have to bite our nails because it's no mistake. God is going to use these men for His plans and His purposes. God is going to crush Jesus. God is going to make Him suffer so that we could have the key to be restored in our relationship with God. And Scripture tells us very clearly that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that you will be saved. And so tonight, right now, if it is the first time that you have understood that the keys to knowing God is indeed Jesus Christ, God's opened your eyes. God's done the work. He's caused you to see Him. Do not reject Him today. I'm going to be standing over on this side in the back and I'm going to ask one of our other elders, Jeff, to be over on the other side. And that tonight, if you want to respond to the Lord by finding out more about what Jesus has done for your salvation, then we want to talk with you. Here's my other challenge. Tonight, if you have been giving people the false gospel, if you have been leading people towards works, if you have been leading people towards prosperity, it's time to repent if you have been taking what you have been soaking up and giving it to people that you love and it's wrong, repent. Repent tonight and God will save a thousand generations. Tonight, if you're burdening people, repent of the burdens that you're laying on people's backs and give them Jesus. Because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that You would do a work in our hearts, God. We believe that only You have the power and the ability to save. God, I pray that You would do a work in our hearts tonight. Father, if there's people that are in this room tonight that don't know You, I pray that You would move in them. I pray that You would remove the veil from their eyes, that You would cause them to see You, and that they would choose You, Father. God, I also ask you right now that if there is any false gospel that's in this church, that we would be purged and that we would give people the right key, which is Jesus Christ.